This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I really wish this tape was rolling for the past five minutes so people could have just heard us being ridiculous in the studio. I'm uh. actually glad it wasn't rolling because most <laughs> of the jokes were at my expense. We used up all our good B-roll. Sorry, Yeah, guys. you know, I, I mean, it's, it is evidence of how the world has turned from sublime to utterly ridiculous that the first thing we do when we get in here is just explode with yeah. dark humor. Yeah, and make fun of Ben. And, well, there's always scope for that. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the With Enemies Like These, Who Needs Friends edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Washington Post. That was not a comment on you, Ben. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. We're talking about NATO. NATO, Ben. (laughs) NATO, NATO. Ben, you would make a great Secretary General of NATO. Ouch! <laughs> Seriously, you have to be the most stone-faced, you, <laughs> colorless diplomat in the world to do that, that job. That did not mean to come out as a bar, but and, it did. And, and you would make a great head of PR Ooh. at at, at, oh. a, at a defense contractor. Oh. Wow! <laughs> now listen, I will Just have to be you fair, know, you there would are both be terrible at both of them. Yes, <laughs> and there are many so. fine PR people, defense contractors, who used to listen to this podcast before today. <laughs> Oh, boy. They are my object lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Just cancel the show right now. (laughs) I am here in the Jungle Studio. We promise we're not drunk and we're not on laughing gas with uh, Susan Hennessy, Tamara Kaufman-Rinis, and Ben Wittes. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. This is what we're like when we're sober. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, we are recording a little earlier in the day today, so... Usually around three o'clock we have a little tipple, but it's it's eleven thirty. It's a little bit early for the to break out the Isla. I think technically before ten in the morning is the only uh is the only good the time only to AA guideline yeah. on uh that's, not that's, that's the AA official good please we're avoid drinking. Do you drink before, before 10, ten in the morning? No, we're good. Oh, that's God. fine then. Uh, a programming note. So sorry, we won't be recording next week. <laughs> we clearly need a break. <laughs> we are all either out of the country or off in various places next week. So you will not find us in the feed next week, but we will see you after that. But we have a lot to get to on the podcast today. President Trump picks Judge Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. What are his national security views? Trump blasts NATO allies ahead of a one-on-one meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin, and migrant families are being reunited with their children, but the process has been painful and opaque. Um, Let's start with the big news uh, on the court this week. Uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh is uh, President Trump's nominee to replace retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy. Um, Let's break this into two pieces of discussion. Uh, The first one, which I think is not getting a lot of attention, which is um, what are 
his views on national security and foreign policy? What are the kinds of things that we can expect him to, or what do we know about his views? How might that influence the decisions that he makes on the court? And then secondly, we're going to talk about the question of his views on whether the president can be indicted and should be investigated. There's obviously been a lot of talk. Ben Wittes has been talking a lot about that. Um, Not a lot, but some. Some. Uh, but we'll get to that second. But let's just start first um, with what do we know about Brett Kavanaugh and his views on national security, on executive authority, on these kinds of core things that are obviously of interest to us and our audience? Susan, do you want to start or Ben? So I'll let Ben start only because, I mean, Brett Kavanaugh is very much a known quantity to sort of the lawfare universe. And in some ways, that's bad news for us because it's it's a lot more work than any other uh, selection for the Supreme Court. But um, He's like part he, of the lawfare deep state. <laughs> he is someone who has um, uh, very articulated and developed views on, you know, a, a number of issues sort of related to national security. Just, I think, by one, by virtue of sort of um, his his intellect and, and interest. Um, you know, he's written a lot of law review articles and other stuff, but also by virtue of sitting on the DC circuit where they hear these, these particular cases. So there, there actually is a remarkably developed record here. Yeah. I think that's, a, that's, that's first of all, the critical point, which is that unlike any of the other nominees, the president was considering most judges don't actually work on or think about national security issues. But if you've been on the DC circuit for the last 10 years, you were part of a very dramatic uh, set of national security issues that came before the, the D.C. Circuit following the Supreme Court's decision in Boumediene, which, uh, you know, created habeas jurisdiction uh, over Guantanamo. And those were concentrated in the D.C. Circuit. And the result was that uh, a couple dozen cases came before the D.C. Circuit that raised all kinds of issues about presidential power, detention power, law of armed conflict, the relation, you know, foreign relations law. And so all of the D.C. Circuit judges, to one degree or another, have spent serious quality time with national security questions over the last 10 years. In addition, this happens to be an issue, a set of issues that Brett Kavanaugh is personally very interested in because of his time in the White House. And he has a pretty substantial uh, interest in matters of the institutional presidency and its relationship to other branches of government in general. Uh, put those two together and you get a guy. So he's done some outside writing on these subjects. He's done some, uh, he's, he teaches uh, separation of powers, uh, both at Harvard and at Yale. Uh, he's taught some national security law. Uh, so this is somebody with a pretty deep personal set of interests in this subject. And he's done a lot of writing on it in his, in his personal capacity, including on lawfare. Um, and, and so what does he say? So I think there are, like, broadly speaking, a few things you can say. First of all, he's a conservative judge who has a, uh, a a deference to the executive in national security, a strong executive deference streak. I don't want to overstate that. I don't think there's a whole lot of daylight between, say, Brett Kavanaugh and, say, Merrick Garland, at least that you can discern in their D.C. Circuit writings. Uh, I don't know of – I'm just – I'm not – 
there are a few areas where there might be, but you know, broadly speaking, the DC circuit uh, has been. There's been a strong center on the D.C. circuit on certain national security questions. And I would say both Kavanaugh and Garland have been party to that center. One is a somewhat right of that center. One is probably the dead center or slightly left of center. But I think there, you know, there's a definite deference streak, but it's a deference streak that a, a bunch of those judges share. The second element is that he is, you know, always up or sometimes up for real surprises. And, you know, uh, he, uh, some of those surprises cut in directions that people don't expect. So in one of the military commissions cases, he was, uh, he took the position that uh, the ex post facto clause of the Constitution, which, you know, forbids retroactive laws, precludes a, a, a certain set of charges in the military commissions, uh, uh, w- with respect to conspiracy and material support, this was a big, you know, one of the few real big wins the left got in, or the, the, the defense has gotten in the DC circuit in military commissions matters or in, 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 in detention slash military commissions matters. So he's not a, a monolith in, in the sort of right wing judge department. And then in addition, if you look at his uh, lawfare review of Judge David Barron's book, um, so Barron is the author of a book about, uh, you know, the history of, you know, sort of presidential, uh, presidential kind of, uh, uh, congressional presidential relations in the national security sphere. And Kavanaugh, uh, Barron is a judge on the First Circuit and was in the Obama administration at OLC, where, where he worked with Marty Lederman. And, you know, Kavanaugh's review of his book is extremely respectful and very deeply engaged. So it's not a sort of Scalia, you know, kind of bomb throwing exercise. It's very, it's, it's very restrained. It's very engaged. Um, and then the final point is he has been uh, very clear that Congress gets to set rules in certain areas. Uh, so the area that he's been most clear about this is in detention, where he, you know, the question of whether the president's power over Guantanamo detainees is an inherent feature of the presidency or whether it's statutory in character was very much on the plate at the time the Supreme Court dumped this in the D.C. Circuit's lap. Uh, and he has taken the view that Congress gets to make rules uh, regarding the treatment of detainees. And so that is actually a really interesting thing, It it involve, particularly in interaction with his deference views, because number one, he seems to be saying the president gets a lot of deference. But number two, when Congress speaks and makes a rule, that's kind of the end of the conversation. They get to do that. Uh, so I think it's a com- honestly a complicated picture. He's a conservative judge. Uh, I have no doubt that he is more conservative on a bunch of these issues than Anthony Kennedy, uh, particularly on, on certain interactions between con law and international law issues. But I also think he is a complicated and diverse mind who will come out of left field and surprise you sometimes. 
So I think it's worth it. I largely agree with that. And I think sort of Steve Vladek um, has a quote in the New York Times that I, I think captures it pretty well, which he says that Kavanaugh is an unrelenting, unapologetic defender of presidential power or proponent of presidential power, which I, I think is broadly captures it. Um, and, and I agree with all of Ben's comments with respect to sort of our national security world, right, which is a relatively narrow slice of sort of the Supreme Court justice. Uh, the, we think the most interesting, um, although certainly not the most consequential. And so I do think it's worth sort of, you know, Brett Kavanaugh is is significantly to the right of Anthony Kennedy. Um, this is extremely bad news for people who are concerned about the future of Roe, um, you know, the, any number of sort of um, uh, big um, sort of social divisions that have come up to the court. Um, you know, Kavanaugh is, is identifiably extremely right here. Um, so I, I just think it's worth sort of caveating that. Um, I do think that sort of within, you you know, and again, people surprise you. Um, I do think that it's probably whenever we think back on uh, on the last Kennedy decision, right? This sort of this willingness to extend deference in the face of. Uh, you know, clear presidential statements to the contrary, right? Sort of this pretext argument. Um, the uh, whenever you sort of take that with a highly dysfunctional Congress, a Congress that uh, doesn't even necessarily know what it wants when it passes particular pieces of legislation, is is having trouble overcoming its own inertia in ways that we haven't quite seen before. I do think that um, it will be really, really interesting to see. And I think he's more likely, although that's just a guess to sort of um, adopt that model of, you know, we're just going to we're going to pretend as though everything is operating normally here when it isn't operating normally. And I, I think that might have uh, some some significant consequences. So let's just drill in briefly on another particular set of views that I think are it's fair to say are going to occupy the vast majority of the attention and the political bandwidth around his confirmation. Well, at least when when that bandwidth takes a breath from talking about Roe v. Wade. Well, that's true. Okay, so yeah, that, that that's a that's a fair point. I mean, that, that is going to be there's going to be the two. Let's say let's put it in two categories, right? Half there's the bandwidth. Be, yeah, half the bandwidth. But I mean, right now, what you're hearing, I guess, what maybe rephrase this. I think that Democrats are very quick to jump now on this particular issue. Uh, as a as, as a strategic matter of what were his views and what are his views on whether or not the president, a sitting president, can be indicted? What is the utility of the special counsel's office? Should there even be a special counsel's office? And Ben, this narrative has taken hold, which I have to say, I've heard very confusing points on it. I mean, I think I've even heard two different versions of the narrative in the past 12 hours that Brett Kavanaugh starts off working for Judge Ken Starrs, a special counsel, and is a very vocal, uh, adamant proponent of going after the president and investigating the president. The president can be indicted. Well, maybe he didn't go quite that far. But then suddenly writes a law review article where he says, boy, then I went to work for George W. Bush and I realized the job of being president's really hard and we shouldn't go so hard on the president. I mean, there's, there's an oversimplification that is happening here. I'm not even sure what the facts exactly are. But what, what do we know about what he thinks on whether a president can be indicted, a president can be subpoenaed, and whether or not he uh, thinks that the special counsel is in practice a good idea. Okay, so first of all, what we know about what he thinks right now, after an additional eight years after this Minnesota Law Review article to think about it, is we don't, right? 
Um, he may but, have changed his mind again. Well, so first of all, I think it's important to s- focus on what he changed his mind about. So I think that story is a caricature. His views were always interesting and complicated. They became interesting and complicated with some additional wrinkles. It's not clear to me that his view of the law ever changed. And by the way, if the question, if this question boils down to should Donald Trump be putting him on the court to protect him from Bob Mueller, the answer to that question is certainly not. And so to the extent Democrats are trying to make this point do a lot of work for them in the Russia stuff, that is almost certainly a delusional enterprise and one that's going to backfire on them because the record actually doesn't support their point of view. So here's the actual record. As a young lawyer working for Ken Starr, Kavanaugh worked on a bunch of things in, in the special counsel's office and then leaves the special counsel's office in the late 90s. I forget exactly when. Uh, and goes to a law firm where he practices law for a little while and then comes back to the special counsel's office at Ken's request to help write, do some of the litigation, the privilege litigation uh, during the Lewinsky stuff, and then help write the Star Report. In that interregnum period, he writes a really interesting law review article for the Georgetown Law Journal Uh, which I remember really well from the period because when I was writing my book about the Starr investigation, this was one of the only arguments that anybody was willing to make for a reformed independent counsel law. Everybody else was arguing against the independent counsel law that it's, you know, it's a a monstrosity. Liberals had come to hate it, etc. And Brett wrote this article that said basically, hey, We do need one because we're going to have these investigations in the future. And he describes an independent counsel law that looks a hell of a lot like the Bob Mueller investigation. Now, the Mueller investigation is in is not in statute. It's in a regulation. Right. But he goes actually further than simply describing a structure that looks just like Bob Mueller. He actually says that Congress should write into law what he describes as already law. Under, under precedent, that the president has no executive privilege before such an investigation, no attorney-client privilege, uh, and that all such privileges disappear in the face of such an investigation. That is the only state in that article. Moreover, he says that it is unclear whether the president can be indicted while he's still in office and that he thinks the president shouldn't be amenable to indictment while in office. That's, by the way, consistent with Justice Department policy. That's his only known stated views of the law. In 2009, after serving in the Bush administration, he writes this second article where he says, you know, having now experienced the presidency up close, I think I was too enthusiastic about investigations of the president in the 90s. I think the Clinton investigation was a mistake. Basically, he all but says that. He doesn't quite say that. And he thinks that as a policy matter, Congress should enact certain protections for the president, including ones that would devastate the Mueller investigation, clarifying not merely that the president isn't amenable to indictment, but that he can't be compelled to testify. He can't be – he really basically shouldn't be investigated at all. But these are stated as legislative views. 
in this article, so he again, does, it's let Congress decide. Let well, let this is what I think Congress should do, not mm. what I think the law is. He never contradicts his earlier statements about what the law is, and in fact, he cites them. So, I think the best way to understand Kavanaugh's positions about this is that he has developed views of the law, what a constitutional investigation looks like, what the president's rights are in front of that investigation. And those are really favorable to Mueller. And he has policy views that he thinks should be adopted as a matter of legislative policy, but are not law, that would be very favorable to Trump. Okay, so I think that's a really interesting point. And I think it connects to a point that Susan made when we were talking about his national security views earlier, which is, you know, this sort of Congress needs to act. And if Congress isn't doing its job, don't ask the judiciary to figure this out for you, which is a feature of a lot of conservative jurisprudence and but not only conservative jurisprudence. And we've seen that in the national security law space. And I think Susan's point that Congress is utterly dysfunctional in this stuff is, you know, is cautionary because one way or another, these questions in this politically polarized an environment where you have a president who is clearly willing to go to the wall in defense of himself, his friends, his interests, it's going to be decided in the courts. Congress is not going to pass a law to protect the special counsel. We've already seen that. They're also not going to do anything else to clarify the situation. So it is going to end up in the courts. And so while it's it, it's important to note that there's a, you know, that it's not clear um, what the preferences are as a judge, you know, that he'd prefer certain kinds of congressional guidance. He ain't going to get it. We ain't going to get it. And so I think that's that's the first thing is that this really is going to end up in the laps of judges. And so their policy inclinations, given the, the lack of clarity in the law, matter. One. Two. There's a and we've talked about this a lot. There's a broader political context for the legal argument here. And what I think is interesting is that the Democrats aren't just making the argument that Brett Kavanaugh's views on the law are dangerous. They're making the argument that the fact that Brett Kavanaugh has any views on the law in this question and that he's being appointed by a president who's under investigation makes his appointment de facto illegitimate. That's what Chuck Schumer is saying, in essence, that the president simply doesn't get to appoint this guy because he's got views on the subject. And the specifics of those views politically I think, matter less to the argument. So I think that's right. I, I, I think that is what Schumer's doing. I, I think it's worth acknowledging Brett Kavanaugh is going to be confirmed. And and maybe the Democrats uh, should fight in a particular way, and, and maybe they should use all procedural tools they have available, but they don't have any procedural tools available to actually stop this from happening because those sort of the, it's the middle votes that, that matter here, and it's extraordinarily unlikely uh, that this is a candidate that isn't going to be able to, to get votes from Collins and Murkowski and uh, and red state Democrats. Um, so I think, sort of, as a um, just as a matter of reality, it's worth it's worth acknowledging that. You know, to Ben's point, I, you know, I, I do. Um, we're reading tea leaves, and we don't know what his views are now. You know, I, I do think though it's worth thinking about Kavanaugh's views in the context of what is what are the questions that are actually likely to come before the court. So the areas in which uh, Kavanaugh is probably detrimental to Trump, or or to the extent that we can sort of we can guess what his views might be. 
you know, this privilege question is one that actually might end up coming to the court. And, and he is relatively, uh, you know, well articulated on that on uh, that matter. Um, the question of subpoenaing the president is likely to come up. And, and I think he's probably more likely to, for the reasons uh, that, that Tammy said, I, I think he's more likely to be favorable to the to the position that the president cannot be compelled to testify or be required to, to produce particular things. Um, that said, I think the areas in which it potentially is most problematic or that people are really focusing on um, are the areas that like almost certainly the Supreme Court is not going to be considering these questions. So yeah, it's really interesting that Brett Kavanaugh says it's debatable whether or not you can indict a sitting president. Um, that's There's a lot of legal scholars who would say it's not debatable. You clearly cannot do that. And there are a lot of people who came out of the Starr investigation with the legal conclusion that for at least some has endured to this day that no, actually legally you can indict a president. The notion that the Supreme Court is actually going to be considering that question, the odds are overwhelmingly small. That's not what's, what's going to happen. The other area in which I think Kavanaugh is likely to be favorable to Trump is on this question of can the use of a constitutional power qualify as obstruction of justice, right? So sort of this question of can firing Comey, can the course of conduct, can wielding the pardon power constitute when it's done for a corrupt purpose at a, a criminal infraction. I think he's probably unlikely to do that. Like only not because he said anything in particular, but only because the view that is sort of a maximalist view of presidential power is, I think, unlikely to be really sympathetic to the notion that you can misuse the the constitutional authority. But that's not going to be the question that the Supreme Court decides because Trump isn't going to be indicted. And that's not going to be the question that comes before the court. And so, yes, there's lots of interesting stuff to sort of pick over. But I think as a practical matter, it's it's not as relevant as people think. I do think the one thing that is going to be relevant is this is going to be a brutalizing confirmation fight for the president because, because Kavanaugh wrote portions or the legal arguments of the Star or Star Report. And any Democrat with two brain cells is going to sit there and, and read him lines that he himself wrote that, that describe Bill Clinton's conduct, but also describe Donald Trump's conduct and say, do you still believe that that's an impeachable offense? And, and they're going to do it over and over and over again, and so I think I think it's um, it's a foregone conclusion that Kavanaugh gets uh, gets impeached. But I think the Democrats confirmed. can do. Oh, I'm sorry, confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> Freudian slip there, uh, talking about the president um, that he gets confirmed. Um, you know, but but I do think that the Democrats, uh, if they play this well, can can make this a really politically costly and, and painful process for Trump. Two very quick things. Um, one is people should take a look at the last, uh, along the lines that Susan was describing, the last count in the Star Report, uh, which it's been, you know, probably 20 years since I looked at it, but uh, involves lying to the public as an impeachable offense. And uh, I think Brett Kavanaugh is likely to get a lot of questions uh, about that, given that the president has, according to the Washington Post, told 3,000 lies since taking office. Uh, second point, uh, which just to amplify on Susan's point, the key question that really could come before the Supreme Court in the short term that uh, Brett Kavanaugh's views on are not clear from any of these writings is whether the president can be compelled to testify before a grand jury by subpoena. And that's a question that uh, anybody who reads these articles and purports to have a strong instinct about is projecting their own views and 
concerns and fears because he doesn't address the question in either of the articles. So let's now talk about a group of people who probably have very strong opinions on whether the president should be forced to testify, <laughs> namely good. our NATO allies, because <laughs> they would love to know. <laughs> this week's Rational Security is brought to you by Segway. <laughs> Just Segway riding really, it in to yeah. the next topic. Yep. Um, so the president is, as we speak, uh, meeting with <clears throat> our NATO allies, namely they had a meeting with the Secretary General of NATO, and now he's meeting with the German Chancellor, uh, really giving them quite the talking to. He really railed against, uh, not just I think he's been, he's been railing against NATO allies and, you know, essentially calling them deadbeats. Uh, for for months now, but he goes into this meeting now with our allies, where he started lecturing uh, about the pipeline, the energy pipeline, natural gas pipeline that Germany has with Russia. He called Germany a captive to Russia. Uh, the, his remarks have already prompted uh, uh, the head of the EU, I think, right, uh, Tusk, to come back and say, um, "You should be careful about how you talk about your allies when you don't have that many of them." Uh, this is really just be already just a nasty set of exchanges, which was entirely predictable, right, Tammy? I mean, the president goes into the meeting with NATO, probably wanting to blow that up. And all everyone it seems to be really that they're thinking about is what the hell is he going to do when he gets to Helsinki uh, in a few days and sits down with Vladimir Putin? Yeah. So I, I think given how clear it's been that Donald Trump is spoiling for a fight with the NATO allies – it's uh, it's it's interesting to see how the um, the other side of the Atlantic have played their hand in the lead up to the summit and at the summit itself. And uh, and the breakfast this morning that opened Trump's uh, European visit, his breakfast with Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO secretary general. Yeah, I, it's hard for me to see Ben Wittes and Jens Stoltenberg as anything like one another, just for Ben's the record. Stoltenberg. <laughs> okay, thank you, Ben. That's a really weird image. Um, but I, I think that the, it crystallizes actually the misjudgment that the Europeans um, brought to this engagement with Trump. Uh, they were, they've been listening to him and taking him literally and seriously as he's been complaining and complaining about uh, defense spending and, and the 2% rule. Uh, and so they were trying to set it up so that they could give him credit for the fact that they are all increasing their defense spending. And Jens Stoltenberg walks into this breakfast, you know, saying, actually, you know, we all agree we have to do more. We have to make sure our allies are investing more. And the good news is they've started to. Last year was the biggest increase in defense spending across Europe and Canada in that generation. And then Trump sort of bullies him and says, and why was that just last year? Yeah. And Stoltenberg says, because of your leadership. I mean, it's really, it was just an astonishing. It's, it's degradation. Right. So they were really sort of <laughs> groveling to yeah. try and give him a win. And he threw it in their face right. because he didn't want to win. He wants a fight. Right. And I think that that was a real fa failure on their part to understand that the functionality of the NATO summit for him was not about the substance. It was about the, the theater and the theater is him standing up against them. So what does that mean then for this, for this summit with Putin? You know, they they would all love to make the case and friends of NATO here in Washington have been making the case that 
if Trump is aligned with his NATO partners, he is stronger in a conversation with Putin uh, and he'll get more out of it. And he has been brushing that aside repeatedly. And his his clear intent to blow up the summit right before he goes to Helsinki, I think, demonstrates that he doesn't feel like he needs that strength, the strength of a coalition, the strength of an alliance uh, in bargaining with Russia, that he thinks he can get what he wants out of it all by himself. And so this is only going to increase the anxiety of the NATO allies that he's going to sell them down the river on things like Ukraine. Yeah, so I think that's absolutely right, that he he loves the optics of, of a fight in these contentious meetings. And, and a little bit, the domestic American media has gotten this wrong, thinking that showing, you know, that, that picture of him sitting with Merkel sort of standing over him and showing him as being apart from these people as, as if that's a, a negative narrative for him. I think he, he really does embrace it. Look, I, I think Trump has a, a very clear objective, or to my mind, it's a relatively clear objective, at least to the extent that he's trying to communicate with his base at home. And, and I think it's worth noting that a lot of these meetings are international meetings that are about speaking to domestic audiences. And I think that his goal is to convince his base that Vladimir Putin is good and NATO is bad. And I don't know why that is his sort of his policy instinct, but that actually is the one consistent thing that he seems to be sort of uh, attempting to, to construct a consistent narrative around one piece that is really missing here is where is John Bolton? You know, where is Mike Pompeo? You know, all Hiding. of this whole <laughs> thing about right the, the axis of adults. And I mean, I don't know that Bolton was ever in, in anyone's axis of adults, but right this notion At of least hostile to Russia. Exactly. These individuals with other instincts and they were going to sort of write. So, you know, Pompeo appears to be smarting from, uh, you know, reports that this um, uh, meeting with North Korea was far more disastrous than uh, than even was apparent at the time. You know, but just the, the complete absence of these individuals from the public conversation. Conversation and the extent to which the president's talking points, some of which are factually inaccurate. I mean, these aren't just policy instincts. You say that as though that's a surprise. These are false. <laughs> He's just out there on this and, and how entirely Trump as an individual is controlling this. Well, let me ask then what would happen. I mean, this is the, we're just now we're going to go into the realm of imagination. What if the NATO Secretary General just said to him, you know, they said, and, you know, when, why was this only this year? And they turned him and said, because we're afraid of you, so stuff it. I mean, what if there is a Hugh Grant, you know, love actually moment where basically, you know, as people are smiling in the studio as they say that, where the NATO Secretary General says, we're not going to take this crap anymore from you. Is but, that the rupture of the alliance? I mean, it seems to me like to Tammy's point, take it away from him then. Like, don't, don't no, say we're, we're it's, it's, it's not about us trying to placate you and try to play nice with you, which is exactly what he wants them to do. What if they turn it around and said, you've spoiled for a fight and now you have it? You know, I, I think that that possibility rests on the notion that the NATO alliance for our European and Canadian partners is about a relationship with the United States. But it's not. It's about, for them, it really is about its original and enduring function, which is collective self-defense and particularly collective self-defense against an adversary to the East who is predatory, who's actually, you know, inserting himself and trying to gain ground and succeeding in certain places, both um, at their borders and within their borders. And so they feel themselves right now more in need of this alliance than ever. And I think face a real question about what more they can do 
in the face of American disinterest to shore up their own collective self-defense, perhaps without America or, or with less relevance for America. And I think that's actually why Trump was so keen on picking a fight with Angela Merkel and Germany about the pipeline deal and, the, and Germany's policy toward Russia, because Germany is holding itself up as the standard bearer of European identity and the European vision and the European collective self-defense. And uh, the sort of European populist movements that that many of Trump's political partners uh, see him as supporting or cultivating, they're all running against Europe. Uh, and so he needs to cut Merkel down to size. And so he's calling her a hypocrite. And he's saying, well, you're paying billions to Russia for gas. So what are you complaining about? I'm not sufficiently tough on Russia. Uh, you're in bed with them. And and so I, I think this is a much more fundamental argument, in other words, than about how much is America contributing to collective self-defense and how much are the Europeans contributing. I think it's really about is transatlantic collective self-defense a good thing or not? And I think that Trump, even if he hasn't articulated it or thought about it in these terms, believes it is not a good thing. I mean, it is worth noting that this is also coming at a moment in which I think there have been two deaths in UK territory in the past two days that are strongly or the past two weeks that are strongly suspected. So uh, a Putin critic um, uh, was found strangled in London. Uh, and then these two individuals that um, suspiciously came in contact with uh, with the same nerve agents uh, uh, that targeted, uh, you know, those, those two Russian Novichok. Is that the, yes, the way we the say point. it? Yeah. Um, I'm not up on my. Uh, nerve, nerve agent, agent pronunciation. uh, pronunciations, um, although I should I should learn it. Um, right, Susan. Exactly. Uh, right. But this is right. So we're, we're not just seeing um, uh, a generalized aggression. There's actually new, incredibly urgent developments that, that Trump doesn't appear to be talking about at all. So I, I do wonder how that all plays out. Shane's well, eyes are bugging out. What's yeah, going on, man? Breaking news that, uh, from the Wall Street Journal. NATO allies should commit to defense spending of 4% of economic output, not the agreed 2%, Trump says at a tense Brussels summit. Which, <laughs> which just proves that it's not about the money. He actually doesn't care. Yeah. He just wants the fight. Yeah. Well, speaking of the fight, <laughs> let's just turn to even grimmer news. <laughs> uh, families who were separated from their families as they tried to cross the U.S. border, are being reunited now, but it has been a very opaque, uh, slow, obviously very painful process for the families uh, that are involved with this. We've seen some pretty harrowing stories of children not immediately recognizing their parents, uh, having gone through the trauma of being separated from them for several weeks. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of the, there's a couple of legal dimensions to this right now that are worth at least trying to address to see where this thing goes. I think we've basically dissected in previous podcasts how this was a uh, both a deterrent policy by design and a crisis uh, uh, of its own making because of the administration's actions but now they are the families are being put back together it's they're, they're, we've got this happening at undisclosed locations so it's not exactly clear how this is being monitored um, but there also has been a deadline imposed for reuniting the families that's clearly I think not going to be met and also a judge has ruled against the administration's efforts to detain families with children for the long term so I mean, 
putting aside let's for for the moment because we don't have a lot of time left and we've talked about it just the the policy itself and what was inherent in that this giant mess has now been created and it seems like there is something of a showdown between the executive and the judicial branch over what the administration can actually do. I mean, who's going to come in and say to the administration, no, really, we're serious. You can't hold these families indefinitely. Stop doing it. Well, ultimately, there's a contempt issue. I mean, if you have a court order. To- well, then who do you throw in contempt for that? The chair, the head of CBP? Uh, or, or HHS, which is holding the kids? Well, I mean, I, I, I think you would have to Look, I, I am I, I want to be careful about how I talk about this case, which I have not followed with the care that would allow me to answer that question precisely. But if there is an actor who a judge is concerned is not doing all that is in her or his power to effectuate the court's order, the judge could issue a show cause order while that why that person should not be held in contempt. And that is a. Uh, a remedy that is within the equitable powers of courts to do. And the, one of the ways that the courts hold executive branch officials accountable. And that, you know, that ultimately that's, that's what, that's the teeth that the courts have here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I do think what the, what we see judges saying is that they're not going to accommodate uh, the executive branch here, right? So you have DHS essentially saying and HHS essentially saying, we can't do it. So they can't do it because there was never a plan in the first place and because they didn't, like, it, it's sort of, it's a it's a they, crisis of their own creation. But, yeah. but they're actually, right, it's not that they're disregarding an order. It's that they actually don't have the, the capacity to comply with the order. And we're seeing judges really not having patience for that argument at all. So I do think it's interesting how sort of the the most immediate conflict is um, is going to play out and whether or not there's going to be a, a contempt order and, and what that looks like. I do think it's sort of um, we are now kind of coming to the full circle of um, of the Trump administration being really in the exact same dilemma that prior administrations have found themselves in, in that there are people who are crossing the border. There is, it's an incredibly difficult policy challenge. The question of uh, how you, uh, in what manner you detain people, right? So the Flores order was under the Obama administration because that was, right, their policies were detaining families together. How do you uh, have programs that are going to incentivize people to actually show up for court dates? How do you essentially put people and I think this is where they'll – I think the, the Trump administration will land on essentially what the Obama administration's policy was, which is whenever they uh, – uh, whenever individuals are, are caught, uh, they'll be put to the sort of the, the choice of, well, you can either voluntarily deport um, or you can go through immigration proceedings and, and trying to sort of bifurcate it that way. So they really are in the same, you know, really, really difficult uh, policy position without any new answers coming up against the exact same court uh, and legal challenges that the Obama administration had, except for now they've also created unbelievable political pressure because they've they've shown this un, this uh, this spotlight on it. They've implemented the policies with sort of maximum cruelty. They've owned the policies in the way the Obama administration never did. Obama was always saying like, you know, we're sorry this is where we we have this mess and we're trying to do the best, but really trying to sort of hold it at an arm's length. The Trump administration has wrapped its arms around this absolutely toxic thing. And so now, you know, right they're, they're exactly where the prior administration was, except for a million times worse off. And so for all sort of the, you know, attributing the strategic brilliance to Stephen Miller or anybody else, this strikes me as 
just an unbelievable miscalculation on, on the part of the administration. And, and I see no positive or face-saving way forward for them. Yeah. So I think that's a really, really good point in terms of summing up the politics of this. This was a case where malevolence and incompetence combined to create a massive political like problem. The Wonder Twins. Yeah, the Wonder Twins. And <laughs> the administration doesn't have a solution to it. But I think simultaneous with that, what's coming out in these court hearings and in all the stories that we are that good reporters are telling about these individual families and parents and children and what's happening to them and um, the tragedy of what they are going through is it's also creating a portrait of government incompetence that is just astonishing. Like, how can it be that HHS takes these children and doesn't know who they are or who they belong to on the intake and then loses them on the outtake. Like, and so I, I worry that whatever else happens as a result of this horrific policy, it is further entrenching Americans sense of the uselessness of their own federal institutions. Abolish ice. <laughs> ben had a conversation about that. On, on Yeah. On which subject you should listen to the Lawfare podcast uh, this week where we had a abolish ice conversation with Carrie Cordero and uh, Paul Rosenzweig that got into the uh, bureaucratic and substantive nitty gritty of a lot of these questions. Yeah. And to be clear, I was not advocating. I was merely quoting the hashtag. <laughs> Just quoting. Before you get me any angry tweets. Uh, all right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll go first. Um, my object is the Aspen Security Forum, where I will be next That's week. That's a hell of an object. It's a high altitude. It sure is. It's a it's a high altitude, hoity toity object. Um, but I'm very curious about this. Um, last year was a sort of a weird one. This, for those who don't know, this is an annual gathering of we're usually, uh, you know. A fair number of currently serving either people from the national security bureaucracy or political appointees who come together and it's like the intelligence community. Yeah, right? it's kind of like the intel NATSEC community. The yeah. idea is that everyone gets out of Washington, goes up in the mountains, gets some headspace. Um, journalists are there, think think people are there, people are kind of mixing it up, and you're supposed to talk about big issues. Last it's year, an elevated conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry what you did myself. there, Tammy. <laughs> um, but it, 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 last year it was a little bit strange um, for obvious reasons. This this uh, group of people who were there were still, I think, reeling from the election, and officials from the Trump administration did take the opportunity to come there and assert some of the national security priorities for the administration, but also to make very clear that, yes, we believe Russia intervened in the elections. And let's just dispense with that and get that out of the way. Some of them did that rather against their will, though, because certain journalists, when they had them up on the stage, yeah. put them in that position. Yeah. So there are a number of people from the administration coming this year, but there are just a whole lot of ex-administration people, and it is taking on- you mean from former From former administrations, and namely from the Obama administration. And it's, it'll be, it's always interesting, uh, even if news is not made at these events, to try and use them to gauge uh, the temperature of certain communities. Uh, and so I'm looking forward uh, to that. It feels like a lot of people who are used to being in power and probably still can't believe what's happening, but I'm not sure that this administration is really all that interested in putting people out there and communing with this particular establishment. Uh, so. Those those elite intellectuals you know, out there in Aspen. Who wants to talk to them anyway? Interesting. Susan? I have an object. 
um, which is probably going to get me in trouble, but I don't care. Um, it is a tweet from one Glenn Greenwald. I, it says, I cannot express how much I love that at Benjamin Wittes is going to be one of the most vocal and loyal supporters of Kavanaugh, who today he hailed as a scholarly and thoughtful judge, a genuine ecumenical thinker, an extremely fine person. Now this, and then shared Ben's um, our, uh, analysis of some of Kavanaugh's prior writings. Um, so there are so few silver linings to, to the current state of affairs. Um, and I acknowledge that this is unbelievably petty of me. Um, but Glenn Greenwald is terrible. And watching the snit he has been throwing over one Benjamin Wittes over the past several months, it just brings this very small kernel of joy to my heart. And it is, look, there's there's very little of sort of the liberal tears point of view that I can connect with at all. But reading tweets like this, for one moment, well, I can get into the mindset <laughs> of the person who's like, yes, I, because I just think it is so goddamn funny. I confess that every time I think about reducing my Twitter personality or my, you know, the, the baby cannon stuff or the uh, – I think about how much it upsets Glenn Greenwald. And Sean Hannity. A and Sean Hannity. And I think <laughs> there is public value to it. Yeah, although I, ha I have to say the notion that Glenn Greenwald is some manifestation of liberal tears upsets me because he's certainly not Oh, a no, no. I don't mean that he, he like he's liberal tears. I mean the people who like get joy out of the other side. Oh, I see. Responding, like the triggering mentality. I, I do not think he represents a liberal point of view. I, I have to say I don't understand why he is so exercised about the mildly nice things I've said about I Brett Kavanaugh. I, you know, I have been writing about judicial nominations for 20 years. I have a consistent and pretty known set of views on the subject. And the idea that I would be saying some of the things about Kavanaugh that I've said over the past, I, I just can't imagine why this upsets Glenn Greenwald as much as it does. But I, I deeply share your pleasure at it. You two need to see you and Glenn need to just hug it out. So yeah. incredibly petty. I, Glenn, out, if you ever really? want to come on the podcast, you can devote a whole issue to it. I, uh, He's too busy on Fox News these days. <laughs> <laughs> or Ouch. in Moscow on a yeah, panel. With, Tuck, with Tucker Carlson. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. You won't see us for another week. Two weeks. Two weeks. We'll miss you. makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> and, and We're we testing need it. that proposition, aren't we? <laughs> Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog forward slash rational security. Rational dash security. Oh, rational cheese. You just go to Lawfare. Gotta make it complicated. <laughs> it had to be complicated. Just Rational go to Google security. and Google it. It's on the law. We actually page. moved the show page. We did. Spaghetti on the Wall Productions page is gone. Yeah. Poof. It was very hard to spell. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Please, whenever you download the podcast, be sure to leave a rating and review. We really appreciate your constructive reviews. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Ben Stoltenberg and The 4%. Cool. They're huge in Brussels. <laughs> yeah. The 4%, which no matter how loud it plays, is never, never enough. loud enough. <laughs> what is enough, though, is Sophia Yan, who sings us out, plays us out just right. She would be big in Belgium or anywhere. Big in Brussels. Big in Brussels. On behalf of my friend Susan Hennessy, Tamara Coffin-Wittis, and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.